Hey everybody, welcome back to Terminus, the Fanta Pineapple of Extreme Metal Podcasts. I am the Death Metal Guy, a.k.a. Bad Dragon Bayonet. <laughs> um, I must admit to our to our listeners that my laughter is somewhat forced because I've already seen this as his Discord handle, but... Uh, <laughs> That is one of the most traumatic images I can imagine. I mean, imagine a whole battalion of boers doing it simultaneously. <laughs> All shapes and sizes. <laughs> boers with bad dragon bayonets. Well, I just imagine it because... Well, that's like the, why the, the English put them in concentration camps. Yeah, well, it I'm was also, the war crimes. I'm thinking of the tiny khaki shorts combined with the, the, just the image <laughs> of the... The horse sticks being rammed onto the end of rifles, and <laughs> mm, the uh, you know, it's like it'd be, it's like, or you know, like you'd be like, sir, that one's got an ovipositor. <laughs> it's like that's like it's like the World War Two moments with the flamethrower guy. It's like bring him down. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna need someone to absorb the impact of the eggs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh God. Um. So, I am the black metal guy, a.k.a. Uh, bleach Pizza. <laughs> this is my concept for a... a th- this band would be on the, on the front page of Bandcamp Daily. Uh, and they would be... Uh, there would be two women and two men. One of the women would be a lesbian. The other would be a she-they. And it would be very difficult to tell them apart. And of the men, one would be a, a like a, a a scangly guy with a receding chin, and the other would be indistinctly puffy. Uh, <laughs> and they would all have tattoos of like sort of gooey pizza slices, and they would play, uh, you know, something that's like kind of like post punk and kind of like shoegaze and kind of like. Like twee music, you know? Yeah. Well, they would have the pizza slice tattoos, but they'd also have all those like um, uh, ironic bad uh, kitchen tats. You know, one mm-hmm. of the girls just has a tiny flying saucer with crude line work just in yep. the middle of her thigh. You know? Yep. Um, they have like um, uh, denim jean jacket, like like blue denim jean jackets. Uh, with patches for things that aren't bands. Oh, oof. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like music anymore. Hey, oh, this is Brandon from Cromlech, and you're listening to Terminus. All right. And we are in with a fearsomely coherent show for you guys tonight. Uh, this is the first time we've, in a long time, maybe almost a year, we've checked in with, maybe more, we've checked in with the kind of, uh, emergent American subgenre we've been calling outlaw rock. This extension of black metal to an American context that has transformed so much, it may not even really be, may not even make sense to call it black metal anymore and might be carrying the music in a good, productive direction, uh, renewing it, as it were. Uh, So, we've got Grave Pilgrim first, Ink and Fire second. 
But you'll notice we've done something a little bit unorthodox. Uh, we're reviewing two Grave Pilgrim records. Uh, this is because the, you know, the, the guy re reached out to us and he listens to the show, which is cool. Uh, and he asked us to review the new EP. And so I said, of course, we're happy to do that. And then we were like, well, naturally, we've got to pair this with the Ink and Fire. Seems like these guys rep each other's bands pretty hard. And it's also just musically a natural pairing. Uh, and then we realized, well, we need like a, another full length record. So let's review the, you know, it, we would have to talk about the last full length anyway to talk about the, you know, to talk about the EP. So we are going to start you out with uh, the self-titled Grave Pilgrim full length from last year. And then we're going to go to the EP. So we'll have our short review in the middle of the show. Uh, and, you know, obviously these reviews will really bleed into one another. Uh, but um, basically, you know, this is a band... Uh, th this is a band that has the most just conceptually mature and complete version of the outlaw rock aesthetic I think we've heard yet, with maybe accepting Makwahedal, right? Mm -hmm. But where Makwahedal and the, on the Gregorio Cortez EP, right, Kansu Pastola, he's working within this sort of like, you know, he's working with the the lineage extending from Aztecs to Mexican border outlaws, right? This is working. Grave Pilgrim is charting this alternate American history, running basically from medieval European chivalry to uh, Euro-American frontier outlaws, right? It's uh, same world, just from a different perspective. And, you know, in many ways, the same basic values manifest just from a different perspective. Uh, and, um, and, you know, it's more obvious on the latest EP where they've really zeroed in on the Western themes, but the frontier lore is important to their whole thing from the beginning. You know, they had, uh, you know, their self-description on Bandcamp is chivalric violence and hideous cruelty. And, you know, their first record had knights on it. Uh, or their demo. This one has a picture of, I think, an early modern warrior wearing traditional knightly, you know, chest armor, uh, chest and arm, arm plate. Uh, so, like, late medieval or renaissance or something. Uh, and, but they've also got as their profile picture the, um, this picture of this just, have you, have you seen that, that picture Death Metal uh, guy? Let me see what on their Instagram. Of they, they're sort of, <clears throat> no, their band camp kind of uh, um, profile image of this, just this dude. This like wild, wild-eyed, long-haired American, see. yeah, uh, American frontier prophet. And I, I had to do some digging uh, and reverse Google image search. And it's, it turns out he's the founder of Oregon. Oh, uh, or not the founder of, but he was a crucial figure in the origins of the, of the state. And, uh, you know, this kind of, and he was literally six, four. So imagine a six, four dude who looked like that much of a Chad. <laughs> um, uh, and so the Americana stuff has always been important. And these guys are from what, uh, right. These guys are from Oregon, uh, and they're from northwestern Oregon. So far, I mean, you know, I think probably rural Pacific Northwest. Um, the uh, 
So, long continuum of history, lots of lore to work with, deep and flexible dynamic sense of tradition, and interest in translating that into a modern American context. Really cool. The other thing is that musically, this is incredibly ambitious. Uh, you know, it has all these, these hallmarks we found of the outlaw rock thing, right? This jangly guitar tone that evokes acoustic playing, a lot of kind of loose mid-tempo grooves, lots of direct influence from rock and metal. And then with these guys especially, there's, I know he mentioned it in Influence Flamenco, which, uh, I mean, is obviously also important for Makuahedal, was important, it's not outlaw rock, but was important for Lamb and Sanguine Eagle. Um, I think flamenco is just becoming like a standard reference point for USBM stuff now. Mm -hmm. And also, tons of intrusions direct from like Renaissance and medieval folk. There's a hidden track on the middle of the record that's a cover of a Renaissance lute track. Um, it, 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 it's, <laughs> I like the, the idea of describing a Renaissance lute piece as a as a track. Like, yeah. Period appropriately. <laughs> Use this yeah. when you examine this new track. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's uh, yeah. It's it's. I I cannot remember the exact title on it, but it's it's a hidden track, and it's a you know it's someone from like from the 1600s. Um, and so there's this direct uh, you know direct medieval and renaissance influence and it's being mediated by just like a couple important black metal bands and what are they death metal guy uh so i personally think that <clears throat> the the two primary influences here are the the one that's going to be the most obvious to everyone is going to be uh pest noir um mm -hmm. and pest noir itself has, has sort of found itself as a stylistic focal point that a lot of the outlaw rock style has sort of gestated around um just mm -hmm. certain principles of their playing again that that use jank that loose jangly guitar style mm -hmm. uh some of the some of the groove stuff um the general vibe of sort of like modernist decay um mm -hmm. all of that seems pretty relevant to outlaw rock or at least certain wings of it <clears throat> And also, mm -hmm. I, I personally believe that if we're going to say there is one region in terms of black metal that has the most influence on the Outlaw Rock style, it probably is French black metal. Um, yeah. With some adjuncts from, you know, Italian and Finnish in there as well. But it's a lot of it's French. Well, in in um, a way, yeah. The, well, we'll talk. I'll, I'll get back to it in a minute. This game of telephone thing. Keep going. Talk about Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, there's a million different ways you can slice it. But uh, and then the other one, uh, which is actually going to be a prominent thing throughout the reviews of all the records of today's episode is uh, Take or uh, Toke. Which is, I think, just, I've, I mean, God, how many times have I insisted on the show that Toka is like a, like a Rosetta Stone for so much stuff in mm -hmm. modern black metal. And also, you know, sort of connecting the dots again, it seems to be one of the most important Norwegian black metal bands to the French black metal scene, especially in their sort of like germinal style in the, uh, in the yeah. mid 90s. Um so, and then you were asking just for context, because I'm more familiar with these records, if I could play mm -hmm. something that uh, makes sense for applying to these records. 
Um, so sure. And I was like, Oh, that's really easy. I, I just, I just throw on any record <laughs> of, of yeah, the first yeah, yeah. three. And I have a human. You would say Toka is also important for the ink and fire later, right? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's, I think it's important to French black metal. And I think it is directly important to these bands as well as outlaw rock as a whole. Um, there's something about the way that he constructs songs and especially given how early a lot of those ideas are appearing. I mean, these are records, these early Toke records are vital sounding and feel like they could have come out today. Um, so for something that just sounds like a lot of the material you're going to hear across these two records and has like specific oddball features specific to these two records. Uh, we'll just listen to the very opening of uh, Over Bjorgvin Grater Himmerich, so the first track off of that record. We're just going to take it from the top for a couple minutes and just start racking up the points for how many commonalities you're going to hear. So yeah, a lot of the uh, a lot of the comparisons are going to be pretty self-evident as we go along with the reviews. But uh, the big things that I want to point out, um, uh, you've got this uh, emphasis on sort of intricate dual guitar lines with a lot more you know guitar playing technique put into it. You know those cool little scale runs and fills that host is always tucking away uh, within these very long dynamic riffs. Um, 
you've got the uh, the sort of sense of propulsive groove as well as that that like intense manic energy across the blasting sections. You've got that little snatch of clean vocals, uh, very sort of oddball clean vocals. You'll hear some of that on the Ink and Fire. Obviously, the extended guitar technique. You're going to hear a ton of that on the Grave Pilgrim. Um, basically, I just think that Take's fingerprints are all over both of these bands and probably just outlaw rock as a whole. The kind of lurching deceleration into triple time after mm-hmm. the first couple blast riffs, that's very much like the thing uh, Grave Pilgrim do all, all over the record, all over the full length, and especially in a, like Thick as Thieves, which I've sampled. Um, the uh, Yeah, it's an early example of a kind of it's like toke it's like you could go either to a kind of modern guitar sound from that or to this kind of jangly jangly thing we're hearing in the usbm bands from mm-hmm. there um yeah you can kind of like smooth it out and it it can those sort of melodic ideas kind of become the 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 host yeah. for like the senior Valon style yeah and then it also has the jangle stuff too i don't hear the cording so much being like these american bands uh but he did make some harmonic innovations that are totally relevant. Like on other, like he of the, he's one of the first people along with Nagelfar to be doing uh, serious major key riffs in a black metal context. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That, you can generally definitely... hear the brighter color of the chords throughout that. Yeah, but you are you are right about kind of the chord voicings and stuff. The, the Take doesn't have a lot of those inverted chord shapes that just became the fundamental, you know, core of like French and Finnish black metal riffing. Yeah, well, he's got um yeah, and it's it's more, you know, those all sounded more like, you know, sort of like noble Nordic symphonic folk music or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh it but like on other, tr- but at the end, right? The thing that was closest, you you pointed it out. You get that kind of like, you get the speed metal lick that's being played in this very rock and roll way with the jangly tone. Right? Yeah, yeah. And you're gonna hear that, um, well, really on both records, but especially on some stuff I've sampled off of uh, Grave Pilgrim. Um, and uh, there are also a lot of parts where he hits. He really hits the pentatonic center of the Dorian scale really hard in a way that, you know, we were talking about it before the show, you know, evokes Celtic folk and, you know, really elemental Northern European folk, but also often comes very close to the blues and he'll throw in bluesy guitar playing flourishes all the time. Yeah, we've t- mm. we've talked about that relationship between like early American folk music, which is all sort of Scotch-Irish descended and the way mm. that gets into... Uh, the blues and rock and roll, you know, yeah. those ideas get smuggled in and then it takes Thin Lizzy with Emerald to like bring them out again a bunch <laughs> yeah. of years later. Well, <laughs> and the parallel, like blues also, like blues comes from, there's pentatonic music in Africa that influences it too. So it's mm-hmm. like a parallel evolution of... Yeah, of, you were talking Africa. about like uh, Malian guitar music. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, so this convergence, but um, yeah, we, we get a lot of... Um, yeah. So yeah, exactly. You get you get this sort of comprehensive penta- manly pentatonic riffing in Toke that sounds both Euro and bluesy uh, and rock and roll and gets accentuated more and more as it becomes more kind of like uh, 
he he goes more and more for the Norwegian redneck thing as <laughs> as, as the right. career goes uh, on. Um, yeah, Norexvop, and he was the first to put banjo in a black metal track. See, I, I've I've heard a lot of people say that. I want to say there was some like old Nocturnal Mortem that might have had something banjo like on it, but I would have to go back. It, but it, I guarantee it did not sound like bluegrass. It wasn't a full hoedown. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. This was this was this was a uh, military grade hoedown. Yeah. Um, All right. So. Uh, l- now that we've talked about just that sort of idea of an influence, what what distinguishes Grave Pilgrim on this record or as a band in general? Um, I think at this point there is enough of there's enough bands kind of playing in this style, this sort of outlaw rock style. E- even if the name hasn't been widely adopted, everybody understands that it's an idea. Like everybody who's kind of deep in a black metal gets mm-hmm. the sense of it. Um, so at this point, now you can sort of filter these bands out by like very specific techniques they use. And I would say the Grave Pilgrim, especially on the first record, is heavily defined by the sort of uh, advanced rock and roll guitar playing. Mm-hmm. Um, like this, this as far as technical guitar work goes in this field, um, this is up there alongside some of the more convoluted Maquahedal stuff, and it's probably beyond that. There's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of really great riffing on this record, but a lot of it is really sort of centered around lead guitar activity that is sort of like Van Halen when you get down to it. Um, it doesn't sound like lead guitar in a black or a death metal band. It's what. This ties into another thing we've been talking about, actually. In an interview, the the uh, there, there's a really good interview with him uh, for for this record. Uh, so it came out last year on the on the blog, the Call of the Night, mm-hmm. uh, and the guy uh, the guy says, "Are you like influenced by Led Zeppelin?" Like I like the, the riffs are very Zeppelin-y to me, and he's like, "Oh, that wasn't intentional at all, right? It's influenced by KPN, but by." But he said he learned guitar. He picked up guitar from Zeppelin. Um, yeah. Like so, so, so he's he's trained in that, and it relates to the idea we've been bandying about about like one way forward for this music being uh, returning to Zeppelin as a source. Yeah, and we've also just talked about the idea of like even if it's not a conscious influence. American guys of a certain age growing up with classic rock just basically internalize a lot of these lessons without even realizing mm-hmm. it necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really starting to bear fruit now. Um, but just so people have an idea, um, let me go just like the opening of the record, uh, the song Plague Commando, and we'll play a couple minutes off that. Um, this is pretty straightforward. This is... A good sample of Grave Pilgrim kind of at their most direct and aggressive. And frankly, I just, I I like the riff.
so yeah, that's just <clears throat> a, a grip of outstanding riffs laid out one after another. Um, I, you see, it's it's great that we led with this sample because this brings the Take comparison to like really close, mm-hmm. uh, like close view, especially that second riff, that sort of like hybridized part A, part B riff, the second riff that begins with these sort of rock and roll guitar textures and then flattens out into the trimmed power chords afterward. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a super early Take kind of technique for riff craft. Um, but really what makes this special is just it really comes down to riff quality. And we were both talking about that third riff uh, with that uh, quick little uh, trimmed palm mute figure Yeah, is fucking outstanding. And I love the way he uses that little, uh, that little turnaround guitar fill as a linking phrase for all these previous riffs, you know, just using this quickly developed motif to tie all these ideas together really effectively. Um, it's just extremely good, um, and it bears all the hallmarks of the stuff that we've talked about as far as, like, what is an outlaw rock riff. I mean, well, you've got the the distinctly kind of American sort of pentatonic heading into Dorian scales. Uh, you've got this, this light brush of sort of, like... Uh, Midwest emo and post-hardcore kind of laced throughout it in some of the chord phrasing. Um, you've got the palpable sense of groove. Um, this is this is it. This is the primer on that riffing style to me. Yeah. Um, the other thing, like, yeah, I really like the um, in the in, in that compound toke riff where where you hear the you know the the cascading. Uh, the cascading leads going into the trem, uh, you know, the hard trimmed chords. Um, like, yeah, the, I'm trying to get, there's so many, yeah, it's harder to hum because there's so damn many riffs, but like, you know, you get that kind of wist, that's a great wistful memory, like, that. that's like a, a Celtic folk echo there in a really cool way. Um... And uh, the other thing, it just sounds, all of the note choice just sounds super American. Uh, yeah. And yeah. I, when I first heard, I first heard some of this record last year, and I loved this track. And my first thought, because I'm not like, a, I don't know Pass Noir very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I like Ballade Contra Anime Francor, uh, but I the stuff with this more the more ornate riffing style i'm just not as not as into it not as familiar with um so when i first heard this i was like oh it's like galal stuff how is it it soft g or hard g i should know i think it's hard g i think it's yeah yeah this is uh like when i heard it i was like oh this is sort of like and and especially when i heard the chug right you have these scotch irish sounding american riffs and then you have the chug and i'm like oh this is like a distanced atmospheric argus lent or something mm-hmm. which was a very cool like that i was like that's a cool idea um because it still has that physical intensity in it um and you know also i guess gbk in many ways is also sort of similar melodic style but in many of the tra- in many places more distant and atmospheric in a, yeah. in a rock and roll kind of way well, I think GBK is, like, at the core of a lot of these bands, like, super important. Yeah. yeah. You can really hear it here. I mean, I would I would say that basically what we're hearing here is, like, Galal's 
playing style attached to a different melodic sensibility. Uh, in terms of like the physical act of playing guitar, yeah, it's very similar to the way Galal constructs riffs. Yeah, well, the um, I, I think the uh, the interesting thing is uh, there's a kind of full circle thing that happens here where like like probably what happened is that the sort of uh, rock and roll and yet strangely ornate technical style of GBK influences early influences Pez Noir, mm-hmm. right? And then really the whole outlaw rock concept develops in France through Pez Noir and uh, like Bez Maash who are go really hard on the cowboy thing. Yeah. Uh, and they, they sort of invent this aesthetic and it transfers back to the U.S., partly by direct influence from them, partly by listening to the same shit as them. But there's this sort of full circle uh, thing where GBK goes to France and then comes back to America as now, you know, as now like one of the most influential canonical bands. Yeah, I've always liked the I, I've always liked it when scenes sort of like re-import their own ideas transformed. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, how, yeah. It's it's like how early Gothenburg Melodeth goes to the U.S. metalcore bands pick it up, and then it gets reimported to Gothenburg and changes the fundamental way Melodeth sounds from there. You know, it's mm-hmm. it, it's mm-hmm. it's very interesting the cases where that's happened. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, so so yeah, yeah. That is, it's like yeah, a, a constructive game. Sometimes a game of telephone just destroys things and just like get turns signal into noise in a bad way. And sometimes a game of telephone is creative. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, obviously that part rips, like rips. Uh, um, and so now here is a part where we get into the more uh, in the more ornate part of this record. Uh some this is this this track is called thick as thieves and i think it's probably the longest track on the record and most of the times i listened through to this album and i did several times i found this one an absolute slog um and it wore out wore me out to such a degree that the next track the long descent i thought was the same when in fact it's very different at extremely high energy and banging but like it, it just sort of like uh, like I just sort of like blanked until the her- part of the heretic and the herd. However, this morning I threw this on, and it's not exactly my thing, but I really got it and uh, really enjoyed it. So let's listen to uh, it. It has a long opening, so we're a bit of the way into the opening. Uh, and you'll hear the kind of two two configurations this song shifts between, and you'll hear an atmosphere that is, uh, um, you know, maybe you've heard on a Pest Noir record, but it's pretty unusual in an American context and interesting.
time to growl there. Uh, the vocals here, which we'll discuss more, are not much of a presence on either of these records. However, he chewed, there are moments when there are just really well-chosen exclamations that make a part very heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, but yeah, the, um, so what's you know so the atmosphere from the very beginning right it 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 came in and and the thing that sounds basically like twisted circus music or whatever right you were just like yeah that's pure best mar Um, (laughs) which very different verbiage from a way i described (laughs) well to be fair yes he did say gay french circus music Um, but but you know in the sort of value neutral sense of the term gay um uh the um uh, yeah, so this was, uh, th- it was like, it's sort of like cabaret music or something. Yeah. But I think the atmosphere, you take the title Thick as Thieves and the Western Conceit, you've got guys sitting around in the saloon playing cards, swigging whiskey, threatening to knife one another, knifing one another, uh, you know, um, uh, uh harassing the ladies of the night, uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Getting harassed by the ladies of the night. (laughs) Um, Can't we just finish our card game? Getting stabbed Um, by the ladies of the night. Stabbing the ladies ladies of the night. Yeah, okay. And and so on, right? This is sort of, um, it's the transfer of that sort of French dockside sea shanty or French urban pickpockets den or whatever vibe to an American context. And it suddenly made a lot of sense. Um, one thing, one thing, this also brings to the surface one of the things uh, that's like the maybe a strength and a weakness here. So, Grave Pilgrim are in many ways drawing on exactly the same influences as the stuff that I consider, you know, uh, way too florid and accidentally poppy that's big mm-hmm. these days right it's it's drawing on exactly the same well of references as really big riff uh you know triumphant big bm uh mm. this is the kp the the pest noir vibe means there's a lot more emphasis on sort of gritty or sour or sinister minor key Mm-hmm. And a lot more willingness to hear d- hit dissonant tones and stuff, which you could, I think, people could hopefully hear here, right? They're not just all like like big big consonant hook riffs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the thing that the Pesnoir does have in common with it is that the riffs are just really long, yeah. right? <laughs> and there are a lot of them. It's highly ornate, and so. This is it, it kinda of, I would say it goes both ways for Grave Pilgrim. The um that the risk of that riffing style, which I find to be very true for those French bands, and even for like a band like Sunop for, is just there are too many good riffs. And it just turns into Riffola. Um, well, I mean, my primary complaint about Passenoir has always been just how kind of labored a lot of their songs feel. Like there, there's, there's always like four minutes of the French circus noodling in the middle of well, it before it gets to the next riff that they actually want to get to. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is it's probably not like it's probably highly improvisatory. Famine, he famine is just like an ins, you know, he's definitely one of the 
uh, a master of stupid smart. Right, that guy is really that. That guy has spent a lot, has worked very hard trying to convince people he's an idiot, um, and and he's he's not fooling me. Um, the the guitar playing is just like really good, and I think he just freeballs a lot of that stuff. Um, and there's a similar approach here. Uh, the weirdly, I think I like the the like the sort of atmospheric wandering improvisation more than I like the big riff here. Uh, yeah, we're flopped on that. Yeah, like the big riff is, um, I think the big riff is very well done, but it it sounds to me like a turnaround. Uh, and it's, um, and it has this like big sort of like, it's sort of a climax because suddenly it gets loud after all the, after all the more sort of, um, uh, more ambient kind of kind of stuff it, it and it you know it, it crests and then falls down and whatever uh, and so the first time it hits it's this big powerful release but then it has this like uh sinking feeling in the middle and I feel like you could almost do it as a one and done it's it's really really smartly well constructed it it sounds totally not like a metal riff it sounds like the kind of thing you could have heard 400 years or 100 years ago or whatever right it's there's a lot to recommend it but after two reps i'm starting to feel like does given the phrases so long four is a lot mm. and as the song goes on they they break you can hear them breaking out of it at the end of the sample and now we get back to the more sort of acoustic textures but it's a lot more driving and up mm-hmm. right it's less distorted but it's more we get more sort of punky metally momentum then at, they just go back to the big uh, that big phrase at the end and this is a case where weirdly I think. I may prefer the extremely ornate riffing when it works, when they're exploiting the, when like, instead of riffola, it's texture and atmosphere. And it's just like, yeah, there's a guy in the back corner playing guitar and another guy next to him playing guitar and one of them's improvising and, you know, someone else is in the corner playing the piano and people are listening to them, but mostly they're playing cards and arguing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get what you mean. Uh, I, I'm just more primed for. Um, I'm probably more primed for the guitar guy stuff uh, on this record, just because I come from more of that background. Uh, so for mm-hmm. me, there's just like enough depth in that riff to really sink my teeth into for four repetitions. But it's also just a riff that is not shaped in really what you're pursuing in black metal. So I can I definitely because you were talking while I was playing. It was like. It was reminiscent of the parts of GBK that you're not really interested in. Yeah, it it, it has this. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's just not like it. it it's not driving or whatever. But it is. Um, but like there are GB. Those are GBK riffs I respect. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. these are like deeply learned and interesting riffs. Um, and I think that one totally has a place in this song. I just feel like one thing that makes this track feel long is that that riff comes back more than it needs to, I yeah. think. Uh, and I guess the other thing, the, you know, so that's the criticism, but the compliment there is 
weirdly, I guess I trust this guy to noodle yeah. because it's it's not noodling. Like a lot of the improvisation is really good. And you've one thing I've talked before about wanting to hear more of in black metal and thinking especially, I mean, American stuff is a good place for it, wanting to hear more openness and improvisation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of uh, not being driving enough for you, <laughs> we, we both sample off a track called The Heretic and the Herd, and we like opposite parts of the song. Which is which is interesting. I like the opening. The black metal guy likes the uh, the back half, um, and I think this is just really impressive because. Uh, th- so this track, uh, this track is where a lot of the sort of like Midwest emo texture really comes out for this band. It's sort of a background influence to most outlaw rock, I think, but it's pretty prominent on this song in particular. And in, I guess my thesis statement for this is, like, I think this is what post-black metal should be, where Grave Pilgrim on this song basically construct a really cool sort of um, ornate indie rock song, almost like something from the Appleseed cast or something, out of black metal parts. Um, and just every time I listen to this record, this track and this section of it in particular, right at the opening really struck me. So yeah, definitely not black metal, but you can see how all the constituent parts of black metal kind of feed into it. Um, now, the, the the whole chord progression underlying that is not metal, even remotely. Um, this is, again, something out of like the, you know, like 90s math rock catalog, something like that. Um, 
but I think it's great. And I think these are the sort of more like chill atmospheric parts that I appreciate more than the direct kind of KPN inspired stuff. Well, there's like a, a spectrum, right? It's like the really, there's stuff that is, this band is doing a lot of things. And I think that's one of the challenges. It's like, it's such ambitious music that it's going to take them, I don't know, you know, a few more records to figure out exactly what they want to focus on. And we'll get to that more on the next one, right? Mm-hmm. But like, so there's this mode of chilled out Grave Pilgrim. There's also the plain dice mood that we heard on the previous track, right? And they're a little bit different, right? That one is much more sort of like relaxed badassery. This one is a lot more introspective, for sure. Um, And then there are the dramatic pest noir galal big riff moments that they can have very elaborate and some of which are very dramatic and some of which become riffola because there's too much of it mm-hmm. and then there's the parts where they're really locked into writing sort of uh you know epic aggressive uh you know black metal and those parts are really good um and but within those there are different subdivisions too right they they have a they have a way of doing their stompy riffs they have a way of doing their blasty riffs uh there's such a big range here and you can see how all of it sort of fits together but yeah we are each drawn to different parts and uh it's um yeah there's I think one of the challenges will be like how do you how do you focus it, and you know per, I mean potentially a great triumph would be finding some way to do it with all the parts still mm-hmm. in the final thing. It's just going to take take a minute. Um, so speaking to that, let's go to a really um, so I obviously went for a more kind of the, the oh yeah the, the atmospheric stuff really is important to this band's music right, and they have unusual ways of producing atmosphere right, very different from just like. Just play some chords with a lot of reverb. Um, uh, labor-intensive atmosphere. But, like, you know, as we, we heard with the first sample, the locked-in moments rip. Uh, Heretic and the Herd is basically two songs, and I perk up when I hear the second one.
Yeah. That's, I mean, to me, that is a great example of a distinctly American-sounding ripping outlaw rock riff. Oh, um, yeah. A lot of this stuff hangs out, bands like this hang out in the mid-tempo and then will lay on a blast for big extended riffs influenced by French and Finnish stuff. Mm-hmm. This, that way of riffing is, you can hear all of the black metal in it, like it's really like Bathory black metal in it even. Um, you can hear the Scandinavian influences and, you know, the nobility of it, but it just is greasy and American, right? It's like bringing it full, bringing the motorhead full circle to the ZZ Top. Yeah. Um, you know, again, there's there's many cool kind of full circuits around the extreme music spectrum that happen on this record. And, you know, that's awesome. You know, I obviously love driving punkish speed metal riffs that are repurposed in this way. Um the Swedish band Panfage was incredible at that. He basically said, I don't like speed metal very much, but I made myself listen to a lot of it so I could write these riffs. <laughs> um, but, like, this is a much more uh, rockin' approach. And, you know, on the last on the last show, you were talking uh, in, with a very different musical context. <laughs> you, you were talking about Psychroptic being masters of writing riffs that have multiple moods in them. Yeah riff mood hybrids in the riff so this one is there's like three or four moods in that riff it starts out just you know like attack riff you know sort of aggressive thrashing uh does a sort of noble lift that sounds extremely wet that clues you in oh this is like western specifically it's like the kind of kind of chord change you would hear in I don't know like a cowboy movie soundtrack, right? Or or in country or something. And then it stays sits up on that root note, but it just inverts and sighs and goes minor, right? It's a very powerful. It's like sort of melancholy but very powerful. Uh and just for that moment it reminds me of the uh <laughs> the dark pop punk riff end of the Maquahedal record, uh, Altar of <laughs> McLampa. Do you remember that one? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, um, but it's it's not worded. It's a much more complex phrase that's happening here. Uh, and then we turn it around and we're back into aggressive, uh, aggressive black speed metal territory. And so, yeah, I don't know. That's an awesome riff. The blasting riffs around it, I would say, like, they're very well done, but it's like, we know how those sound. It really interests me. Like, those are almost just like, they're extremely well USBM stock riffs. The thing in the middle just rips. This is a little one gash, and you're listening to Terminus. All right. And we are back with the latest from Creative Pilgrim, Molten Hands Reach West. Uh, this is. So this is an EP, it's following up one year later, and here they are really consolidating the Old West aesthetic, mm-hmm. uh, the frontier thing. We've, we've got a probably Civil War or post-Civil War era soldier on the cover. Um, well, that would be, uh, that would I would assume based on some of uh, what he described in the emails, that's probably part of the Glanton gang. Uh, 
that was a group of ex-Confederate soldiers post-Civil War who went out west to become uh, uh, scalp hunters amongst the Indian territories on the uh, sort of Texas-Mexico border. Um, it's uh, the uh, thematic core, sort of the, the material core from which uh, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian descends, which uh, one of the guys from Grave Pilgrim mentioned in the email is like of one of the primary influences to this EP and probably the project as a whole, which is cool because that's my favorite book. So, Yeah, one tr- I figured you'd know a lot about that. Yeah, one uh, the second to last track, is uh, which is a spooky... Uh, they've gone more full-on with some of the ambient stuff, and the second to last track is John Glanton's Bones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, let's we can talk more about the thematic stuff then. It's, um, you know, so... Uh, it's, you know, he, he, he explains that the, the general theme is manifest destiny as a propulsive and entropic force, which of course has a lot to do with Blood Meridian, I'd assume. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gets to the heart of the outlaw rock thing, right? We've, we've talked about how, like, you know, it's important that this music not have the kind of, uh, the guilt that usually discusses, you know, that usually accompanies, like, frontier lore mm-hmm. in this way. Uh, you could see, like, wh- who's that band? There, there's a some band that does a Western shtick that knocks off hate forest riffs and flagellates themselves. Um, oh, God, I, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, uh, you know, it got a lot of press. But basically, right, on the one hand, it's affirming the outlaw and cowboy and, you know, frontiersman legacy. On the other hand, right, you know, uh, you could say conquering the West, very black metal, smallpox blankets, and, uh, you know, forcing Indian children to, you know, abducting Indian children and forcing them to read the Bible, uh, much less cool, or much less black metal, or the Glanton gang, right? These people were such sociopathic sons of bitches that it's not, you know... It, it, you could not glorify it if you wanted to. It's some of the right? most some of the most legendary barbarism of the Old West. Yes, it's and kind so this, of without compare, frankly. Yeah, so this is the kind of two sided perspective of it, right? It's this um, it, it's this awareness of the, I wouldn't say complexity. Things don't have to be complex. It's just aware of the texture of what was going on back then, right? And the idea that, like, um, you know, uh, well, we've also talked before about how, you know, um, America's sense of uh, shallow history is in part built on the fact that we erased and severed our connections with everything that was here before us, mm-hmm. right? Um so there's a, a, a full awareness of that. And the other big influences here are Moby Dick and Nietzsche. So there is, on the one hand, we've got Melville, who is a, you know, he's an East Coast guy, but he's writing about whaling, and he's writing about whale, his, his, the crew on the Pequod is drawn from all over, uh, you know, all over the America, all over the Western Hemisphere, basically. Uh, and Melville is engaging with all sorts of, you know, like German philosophy and stuff like that. And then parallel to Melville, and slightly later, we have Nietzsche, 
right? So there's still, and so it's linking up one of this, you know, the, the I mean, I guess the fundamental philosopher of the sec- second wave black metal to this American frontier context. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can hear him carrying that tradition through. And, you know, we've talked on the show before about how, like, one of the outlaw rock things is basically how do you refound the American mythos, mm-hmm. right? What's cool about it? The the individual, the uh, the heroic individual, uh, you know, the the sort of building new life on the frontier, the contact and conflict and creative collaboration sometimes between worlds. Uh, Nietzsche is. Uh, it transfers to that in a really in a really cool way. Yeah, and all all of the sort of constituent parts have sort of like relentless inevitability as like core themes to them. You know, and I, I can see that sort of connecting here. You know, the idea of the, oh, that that's a very good point. Yeah, the the conquest of the West being this sort of like inevitable natural force which kind of connects with how Cormac McCarthy talks about war in uh, in Blood Meridian I mean that's that Blood Meridian is something I could talk about for like eight hours right. in and of itself but but in short I my thing is that you know Blood Meridian is basically a story about war being both a natural and sort of supernatural force that consumes men and sort of occurs inevitability inevitably not necessarily the result of anyone's particular decisions but as a a a part of the ecosystem itself um it's really interesting you would actually love the book so oh no i'm sure i would like cormac mccarthy that's you know yeah i tend to ignore novels and especially stuff written recently but like I would, I, I, I for sure need to read those books. Oh, yeah, yeah he's, like, he's he, my favorite author. You've heard yeah. me talk about him up and down, yeah. Yeah, and no, my a, a bunch of my other friends talk about him. Um, and it's, you know, he's certainly a good modern equivalent to Melville, the coldness and hardness of it. And, uh, you know, yeah, I think these guys have really identified a kind of distinct canon for an American black metal language. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting um, is that aesthetically, the first yeah. thing that I can remember approaching this, like pretty in a pretty specific way, um, is actually the band Earth, uh, the drone band, mm-hmm. who did in 2005, I think I might have used one of these tracks on the show previously as like an interlude or something. But uh, they did a record called Hex or Printing in the Infernal mm-hmm. Method, which is this um, sparse cold um sort of western expansionist drone record that's really cool you know who else is at the fundament of this cobalt i was i I was thinking cobalt while you were talking earlier and then it it slipped away but yeah cobalt definitely it's sort of nietzschean frontier americanism yeah Mm -hmm. dude we we need to do an episode on cobalt it's high time to revisit them uh and, you know, the music is phenomenal. It is so aggressive and intense. Um, and and it, it's like black metal organized like tool. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's very, it's it's anti-Euro black metal. It's very know? American, very masculine, very like, you know, very like, very masculine in a sort of, not in a sort of 18-year-old with a sword way, but in a, you know, a middle-aged man with <laughs> Middle-aged a, man with an M16 way. <laughs> and, yeah, and a fucking <laughs> Bowie knife. Yeah, dude. Um, uh, That guy went, 
that guy fucking Phil McSorley went to war in Iraq or whatever because he decided his vocation was to be a warrior. <laughs> he just, he just like, yeah, he, um, did you ever check his, uh, did you ever catch his, uh, appearance on Fox news that he did? Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was, he was like chewing the scenery. He brought his Bowie knife. He, yeah, um, what a fucking weirdo. <laughs> what, what, what a total maniac. Um, and then he got, he was, yeah, definitely a, a trailblazer. Also one of the first people to get canceled. Um, yeah, yeah. He, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of, sort of engaged in a bit of an internet cell phone there. Uh, but, um, you know, I think he's still out there in the wilderness. Uh, I think he'll have his revenge. Oh, he's still doing stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But so back Molten back to this request. record. Yeah. But I think that's totally relevant. We needed to have that tangent. Um, mm. So the Molten Hands reaching west. Uh, this is uh, how do we describe the record? In in some way, I think like what's going on is that they are the the songs are shorter. They're a lot more focused. They don't have the sort of um, like they don't have this idea that there needs to be certain kinds of repetitions or digressions to fit some preconceived structural conceit. Mm-hmm. Right. It's um, they're written more intuitively, I think, and organically. Uh, and um, they're also really refining the idea that they have something to say as an atmospheric folky drony band, maybe more in that hex kind of style mm-hmm. in that earth style. Uh, and so we've got two sets of tracks distinctly. Uh, most of the record is like substantial, or like most of the tracks are substantial ambient. Um, we focused on the metal ones, uh, but the, the the track Young Hickory is really cool. Do you like that one? Yeah, well, I, I think that I kind of... We'll, we'll get into it a little bit. I think that... I detect a, a sort of like extreme tension on this record between a couple different sets yeah. of ideas mm-hmm. with sort of the more textured and atmospheric, including ambient ideas in one corner and stuff reaching back more towards like burly heavy metal in another. Yeah. So the ambient stuff didn't do as much for me. Well, well, I like neofolk. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. you've got different priors. Yeah. yeah. There, there's a cool thing that happens towards the end of Young Hickory where the guitar tone gets more, uh, presumably about young Andrew Jackson, I'd imagine, when mm. the guitar tone gets more more distorted and vocals come in. And I like that. And I feel like in places like that, the vocals stand out more. Um, but yeah, so as for the bangers, yes, it's more heavy metal. And I think that what these are is like really consolidation songs. Uh, maybe none of the individual riffs are as cool as some of the the stonkers from mm-hmm. uh, from the last one. However, Molten Hands Reach West, the you know the first full track, uh, it's this deliberate attempt to do all of the coolest things on all the songs on the last record in one short track, and that is a great idea.
Oh man, that that last riff. Yeah, that's really cool. When when these guys want to deliberately write a climax, it's not just like a sugary hook riff. It is actually like this culminating moment that has its own distinct emotional charge and responds to things earlier in the song. Mm-hmm. Just like sign. Um that's another one of those riffs that just sounds super like something out of a Western soundtrack or country. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's really interesting because that, that, that big streak of like traditional heavy and speed metal doesn't really appear nearly to the same degree on the first record. It comes out in a big way on this one. And uh, I really like it. I, I am really fond of the uh, the newer wave of black metal guys getting really invested in like trad metal stuff. Um, it's I think it's a really neat movement in general. Well, yeah, I mean, I think to some degree, it's if you take the riffing style on the last record and pare it back and focus it more, you're going to get more like trad metal riffs. So obviously the center of that sample was the Galal Necrosotomy speeding ticket riff. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, that is the the stomp that sounds like you're just like hitting, I don't know, 169 miles an hour and you're like laying back in your seat cruising being evil right <laughs> but, but it's like a hard stop <laughs> but in this case you do like the driving riff oh yeah in this case well that's because his it's not a secret agent man riff right this is this is a kind of riff that like the big epic Dorian scale stomp riff has certainly been abused in USBM in recent years, but like there's a reason they're popular, right? Mm-hmm. And just the riffing is, as you say, I like the riff. The riffing is so good. He, and how he like he has the basic riff pattern and then he's playing around it. Um, you could also hear at the beginning of the sample uh, that more just another one of those propulsive speed metal riffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that again has cowboy chord changes. Yeah, they and, litter the whole record. Yeah, so that direct directly echoes that thing from the Heretic and the Herd. So I like hearing them consolidating this vocabulary. If you want to write more direct driving songs, it, you know that and the the speed metal and the stomp are both really good places to start. Um, and you know, like on the last record, I feel like. There was so much texture and then so many really big blast or pyrotechnic riff moments that there wasn't a core of rhythm guitar riffing. On this record, they're getting a lot closer to that. It's much more established. Um, yeah. So I I really like this new kind of riffing direction that that takes over a lot of this EP. I guess my question, though, is that it's like, I guess the, the parts of this record that I like the most are sort of the least um, aesthetically contiguous, you know? Uh, because I really like this sort of, like, desolate, vaguely supernatural, dark Old West aesthetic. But the parts that kill the hardest on this EP are just beer drinking stompers. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, so I want to go to the final track, Hard to Be a God, which is apparently um, their first demo was sort of a, a single version of this, but it, it seems like it's been rearranged. Um, and this is 
I, I know we've talked about it a lot on the show, but if anyone was ever going to deny the whole like thin Lizzie to black metal, you know, arc, <laughs> it's um, mm-hmm. it would be pretty difficult to challenge here. Let's just listen to a couple minutes of this, and it's just like it's fucking emerald off the bat, man. just love everything about this song uh i i don't know what's gotten into me over the past few months but all all of a sudden my (laughs) my acceptance of guitar guy stuff has just expanded considerably how old are you uh, 32 yeah yeah maybe something with that (laughs) i'm just getting i'm becoming a boomer (laughs) yeah yeah. i mean i'm i'm older than you but you know uh i mean i appreciate heavy metal stuff more now more than i ever thought i would uh in part because i'm hearing black metal bands recontextualizing it or all that extreme heavy metal stuff that we've been hearing yeah, so I uh, I mean, pretty much everything I would have to say about this is pretty self-evident. Those were just huge, traditional heavy metal, even just sort of like aggressive hard rock riffs performed beautifully in a really cool sort of black metal context. I guess my question is, how do you meaningfully dovetail that new and remarkably well-defined riffing style with the more kind of diffuse and abstract stuff you're getting from the more atmospheric portions? Yeah. Um, 
I mean, the uh, one thing also is that that's, you know, the Emerald Rift is another really good example of the kind of Celtic influence that's very natural for USBM stuff. Mm-hmm. That just, that, that sounds so good. I also think on this track, there's more of the kind of um, minor key sinister cruising riffage. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot more folk. It's not as fancy and it's a lot more dialed in. And it sounds like Pestoir and it also sounds like GBK. And it also sounds like this guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? So maybe he's working towards a better version of that sound. Where you faded out also had some good, more sinister textured stuff happening, and I really liked it. Yeah, yeah, no, um, it it expands as the song develops. But yeah. I, I, I can't help but wonder what's the trajectory for how we marry these kind of disparate mm-hmm. ideas? Because here it's like everything's been focused down into basically a, a, a smaller handful of ideas, but they do feel a little bit diffuse from each other between tracks on this album, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I'm just wondering, is there a way to marry them uh, in a way that makes for a piece that is as complete musically as it is aesthetically? Yeah, I mean it's. Uh, I mean the this, the intu- the intuitive thing might not be off limits. Just like do the ambient parts as the interlude. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like y- you know, have interludes that don't suck and are substantial, and have you know more than one on the record. Uh, I'd be fine with that. Um, no, we're trying to trying to wrap it up. Can can I do something self indulgent? Sure. Well, I was, it's because I was, I like was reading it like an hour before the show and I was like, God damn, it's all here. Um, So it's it's been a long time, but I'm going to read something, but it's brief. Uh, So this was from uh, George Sorrell's Reflections on Violence. Uh, And uh, yeah, well, here we go. I believe that if Nietzsche had not been so dominated by his memories of being a professor of philology he would have perceived that the master type still exists under our own eyes, and that it is this type which, at the present time, creates the extraordinary greatness of the United States. He would have been struck by the singular analogies that exist between the Yankee, ready for any kind of enterprise, and the ancient Greek sailor, sometimes a pirate, sometimes a colonist or a merchant. Above all, he would have established a parallel between the ancient heroes and the man who sets out to conquer the Far West.
And we are back from discussing the horrors of the hypothetical subgenre, tiki-themed horror punk, to bring you <laughs> Execution of Spirit by Ink and Fire, uh, released independently and on Death Prayer Records, the same label that did Grave Pilgrim. Um, and both of these bands are promoting each other's records on Spotify, so I assume they're bros, or at least there's a strong mutual respect. Uh, so... This is this is like the this is a solo project by MK from Finn. Um, however, when I heard, I assumed it would be like a solo project, but it is in fact like a one-man full band, mm. uh, and this is a very serious musical outing. Um, I'll just say up front. Uh, when I first played it, I sort of had to stop what I was doing and just start writing down my thoughts because it, it was just awesome. Um, I would say there's an interesting dynamic where, like, uh, this in many ways, this is also in the outlaw rock vein. Um, it doesn't, it's not, but where Grave Pilgrim is already just thematically this, like, fully realized outlaw rock vision and universe... Right, but is musically working on exactly where to focus. This is musically fully realized as that aesthetic, a very different take on it, and in a laser focused way. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there. Um, so, how to describe this stuff? This is a a natural you'll hear exactly the same sort of voice guitar playing voice riffing style that was pioneered in finn but transformed in really significant ways so finn was highly influenced by i mean it's basically like peak franco-finnish bm um 
highly influenced by like the most elaborate, glorious uh, satanic war master riffs, and I think very much by French chivalric stuff. Um, and uh, <clears throat> um, and MK developed his own way of doing that. That was really both at the root of this broader trend of triumphant black metal that's everywhere now. A lot of which I. I think has taken it in the wrong direction. Uh, and at the same time, this distinctly American, jangling, distinctly American sound. And he would play these big, broad chords that were almost like, that were, it was very much like playing a, playing acoustic guitar, but playing them with the speed of like Satanic Warmaster riffs and just moving around the fretboard in a way that you would think was physically impossible. That, is that a fair description of the the old Finn stuff? Yeah, um, I mean you're and, better acquainted with it than I am, but yeah. yeah. And part of the problem, like uh, part of the thing with Finn is, um, the riffs were uh, very noble and very bright, uh, and it, it's extremely solar music. Uh, and the aesthetic was drawing on the chivalric thing, um, I, but also tending towards this more American outlaw thing. I have a Finn shirt, and the cover and the front is a horse archer, but surrounded by it, it's all like stylized eagles with with you know s- semi-automatic rifles. <laughs> um, and uh, so it is um, moving that chivalric ethos westward. Uh, and other notable things, although a lot of people have only picked up on the epic qualities of it and the elaborate and florid qualities of it and made music that inadvertently sounds kind of gay, Finn never sounded kind of gay. Uh, <laughs> it was very masculine, just very like a flamboyant masculinity, like the best of the French and Italian bands. Uh, and it was in part also because there was a very powerful drum attack. It was almost like hearing this highly developed uh, black metal cording over like Diocletian drum tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and the and the trem also MK's trem was extremely aggressive and would occasionally lock into these more propulsive, speedy parts. So the music was uh, very delivered very forcefully and with a a horror vacuity density. Every single space that could possibly be filled was filled, and massive riffs would be jammed against each other, sometimes in ways where he was just like, by fiat. It was like, yes, these riffs go together, don't they? They're both sick. <laughs> um, uh, so, um, in some ways, the last Finn record got a little too elaborate for me. There was like a little too much fancy guitar stuff going on, and the broad chords, which would uh, the broad chords would often be weighted towards these ringing top strings, and uh, and then everything would also be dressed up with lead action. Often, I think played at the basically not overdubbed. He just finds a way to do them at the same time. Basically, play things that sound like elaborate leads while doing drone chords, um, and. Uh, you know, it it was, for my personal taste, it was an awesome record, but for my personal taste, it was a little too elaborate, and I felt like the big chords and the ringing tone and the constant leads had a way of um, diffusing some of the energy, like uh, taking away that focused central line of the riff. This record is, really dials it back 
from that, you know, deliberate excess. This is very stripped down in all sorts of ways, uh, and it's really exciting. Yeah, I think it's, uh, this is interesting. Uh, this is a very weird record. I, I think that what you're not mentioning is just how fucking oddball this album well, actually n- is. Now let's go there. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> So from what I read, oh, I, I, I've listened to a, a fair amount of Finn. I'm definitely nowhere near as acquainted as you are. Um, you've got more history with that mm-hmm. wing of things than I do. But from what I can tell, the, the core riffing style of Finn is very intact here. Uh, it seems like MK has a, a particular kind of eccentric guitar style, and that's mm-hmm. fully represented here. But... I think what's really kicking this off is a couple things. One is how, like, demented and fast the whole thing is. Like, Finn was fast, yeah. but this has just, like, schizo energy behind it. <laughs> Finn was fast, but in a blast, in a war metal blasting way. This is fast in a hardcore, uh, in a ripping hardcore way. Yeah, or, or in, like, a death metal way in mm-hmm. certain places. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. It's extremely fast. There's a lot of very concise tracks. And it's interesting that you say it's stripped down because I don't, I get what you mean, but I think this will sound extremely elaborate and extremely complex to a lot of people. Um, like, it, it's it's sort of like Finn songs have been taken and compressed down into, like, two-thirds of the space they occupied previously. Um, The other thing that I want to point out are some of the just really kind of wild left-field influences. Um, And here it seems to be really heavy on, like, 60s and 70s psych rock and, like, acid folk stuff. Um, I'm picking up a lot of just very... Very unusual kinds of melodic ideas, especially in the clean vocal passages that dot the record, um, that remind me a lot more of like like late '60s freak folk stuff than they do anything in the metal spectrum. Um, and I think that in a lot of sense, I mean, this is an outlaw rock record. This is firmly like within the 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 greater milieu of that style, and I think that you can kind of define outlaw rock bands, at least in part by kind of the classic rock bands that they're most interested in. And for me, I think for MK, it's probably The Who. Uh, That seems like the particular classic rock band that's really influential here. It's hard to describe, but I grew up on, you know, The Who and The Rolling Stones and stuff like that as a kid. So there's some sort of like intangible quality to it that strikes me as uh, this is related to some of the most stadium ready of classic rock rather than the more intimate and remote stuff. Um, so. I, I gotta say, I I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't listen to that stuff at all. Oh, it's an, he's, it's possible. Yeah, you know, he's yeah. I mean, I've you know, he's. He's a friend of mine, and he's in touch with a lot of people in the scene. He's been kind of a, a node, and he do he really likes black metal. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? On the last record, on the last record, the Apparition of Sunlight, which we should have mentioned already. That's a project with him and a Quebecois guy, right? Uh, 
Um, I mentioned some affinity with Quebecois uh, post-punk, post-punk, and mm-hmm. th- they were like, "Nah, that's just like BBH warbling." It's uh, oh yeah, no, it's and, a, and it, so some of the stuff that might sound like freak folk, maybe by way of like gorked Russian shaman, definitely, um, yeah, but like I, with with the chords totally changed. I also wouldn't be surprised if he fucking loved the Who or tons of American classic rock stuff. It's just like I, I, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always it's always kind of a crapshoot with these guys because it's like you've got the guys that are like consciously accessing that stuff. You've got the guys who are subconsciously accessing it, and then you've got the guys who are just thinking of it in terms of black metal and aren't even really thinking of it. They don't perceive this as like outside of true standard black metal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's always interesting. Um, so it's a very weird record, a very fast, very intense one. Um, it's, I guess for me, the thing is, so this is what an 11 track record. It's an 11 track record in 40 minutes. So these are pretty concise songs. These are very concise, very specific honed in songs. Um, and there's clearly just a ton of energy poured into each one. I guess for me, it's that the only thing stopping this from being like top tier of the year for me is like I detect kind of an inconsistency between songs. There's ones that totally hit for me and there's others that really fall flat. And I'm going to try to figure out what might make that over the course of this review. But I guess my thing is like... Uh, for me, there is like the best EP of the year tucked away on this album, probably like two thirds of the tracks. And then the other third just really don't do anything for me, which is uh, kind of interesting yeah. when you're in a position like that. I, I, know, I hear the range you're hearing, uh, but like for me, it's like every track does something different and cool. Mm-hmm. This It's structured like a punk record. There are shorter songs we get through. Uh, 11 tracks in 40 minutes. Only a few of them uh, hit more black metal lengths. Uh, and it has the... it. To me, I like the fact that they just keep coming and each one does something a bit differently. I, like, w- with a record like this, you might think he would run out of steam halfway through and that never happened. Or, you know, it would become like an Impaled Nazarene record, right? Where you, like, listen to the first four tracks. Yeah. Um, this is... And then you're like, "Ow, my ears hurt." Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, this it, it is remarkable condensation and sustain. Um, so this record, I feel like this record answers a couple of questions, right? One, our bigger question that we've have had heard answered by other bands as well, right? Grave Pilgrim, Aquahedal, a number of other bands we would throw in that list. Mm-hmm. What does American black metal sound like, or what does outlaw rock sound like? And another thing, like, how do you do a predominantly major key black metal record? So we're going to listen to Execution of Spirit, which I think is, start about halfway through, and I think this is a great microcosm of the whole sound.
Yeah. So that ending riff is a great example of what's changed here. Um, mm. You, it snaps back into this stern Dorian scale blasting riff, right? Which is like one of the more like the chords tighten up, fewer strings. It becomes more like a classic Franco finish thing, and that's like Finn at their at their most scowling. And then he turns it around in this major chord turnaround that is distinctly rock and roll and American sounding Mm -hmm. and is, and you know, he, he just changes the, it's, it's a great example of a hybrid riff and of basically recontextualizing the earlier, more black metal style of riffing. Um, and then the end of the track, right. He finds Mm -hmm. a way to, you know, a lot of the time tracks this straightforward don't have endings, right? You just like, well, yeah, you just end on the second riff, uh, right? Or whatever, right? There's more than two riffs of this, but it's, um, he ends it by doing a kind of coda or turnaround thing that both of us find very unusual and very rock and roll. What were you associating it with? I I was thinking of it as like a psych rock thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, my, uh, growing up, my dad listened to a lot of kind of like obscure psych rock. Hmm. Um, Like, uh, uh, you know the electric prunes, or uh, for something oh, yeah. for something more, a little bit more sensible, something like Captain Beyond. You know. Oh, I've I know electric prunes. Uh, the um, yeah, it's very like early psych rock slash proto punk type stuff. Um, well, I don't really like using the word proto punk. There's just punk before the name. Um, mm-hmm. stuff like the Sonics. Stuff that like has simple kind of thrashy chords, but it's still primarily major key, um, mm-hmm. in a rock and rolly way. Uh, there are a bunch of classic. Um, there's some classic garage rock songs that have chords like that. I don't know, like "Hey Little Girl, Walk On By" or whatever. There's I'm maybe conflating too, I but mean, basically, probably, there's probably plenty of like Stooges stuff that features chording like that. I would imagine. Um, not really. The Stooges oh. is more like blues and Dorian power chord. Um, okay. That's why it's kind of the beginning of extreme music. <laughs> it's um, on the first record, there's some more Louie Louie going on, but mm. it's pretty organized around just like strong root tonality and not doing those kind of major sounding blues turnarounds. Um, mm, okay. It's, but, you know, it, it's like stuff that was around the Stooges for sure. Uh, like early, I mean, fuck, even like the, uh, who's the guy? Um, I, fuck, I'm blanking on his, I, I should know his name, but the, the fortunate son guy. Oh, oh, you're talking about uh, Creed's yeah. Clearwater? Yeah, yeah, like his early, he has early stuff that's really kind of punky, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know, basically just... You know, Murica, fuck yeah. But before that is the interesting thing. One way he adapts from Finn is that even though, is that like, on the one hand, the riffs themselves, the core riffs are a lot simpler. There are fewer chords per riff. They work more as chords rather than these rapidly flowing Franco finish sort of melody through chord thing. Uh-huh. Uh, and yeah, it's the riffing. The core riffing is much more centered on these three or five chord structures, uh, and more focused on the rhythm. Uh, and so all the core work has to come from that. 
where and the leads are used more just strictly as decoration rather than this omnipresent thing. But on the other hand, even as he's doing this sort of punkish condensation, he's also giving the music a lot more space. So the sample opened basically on this long section of just ringing chords and uh, the, the big part in the middle, right? Ringing major chords and just this kind of then the lead decoration under it in this way that's a lot like the KPN stuff from Grave Pilgrim. Did that mm-hmm. make sense to you? Yeah, although I would say I, I feel like when he does those sections, the sort of chord phrasing he's using reaches a lot more toward Ukraine. That makes sense. Yeah, well, that would explain why I like this so much. Um, and in terms of who who did good major key black metal, well, you know, nobody tried to record it as the center tonality of a whole record, right? Mm-hmm. But Astrophase does it for, like, after after Toka and Nagelfar, Astrophase does it, then Druk does it really well. Uh, and you, yeah, you could hear some of that. There's a real interest in drone. And that's what I loved about this middle section. When I first heard it, I could barely make out the sort of lead stuff happening under it. What I could mostly hear was the drone, just the clanging drone over it. And yeah, we, we talked a little bit about that before we recorded. Mm-hmm. I, I've, one of my complaints about the record is the, the production can be a little bit excessive for me. The, uh, the sheer amount of like reverb and delay on everything is, I mean, I like plenty of it, but given how intricate a lot of the guitar work is, I kind of wish it was dialed back a little bit just so I had that little bit of extra clarity. I think that, yeah, I think that's a fair criticism. I might agree with you, but what I do like about it is that it makes it difficult to listen to. I got like, Well, now I've just become the boomer guitar guy. So. Yeah, like, there is, th- this also has the thing of Finn where the level of intensity is so high that nobody is ever gonna, like, this is not easy listening music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of... Um, blown out wind turbine clang um you know it can have the effect of spreading out some of the chords more than i'd like right which and you know diffusing sound to some degree but primarily i love how it works as just a noise effect and you know it's like deliberately obnoxious yeah in 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 a in a very black metal way like the the sort of ringing upper chords in finn were more you, you could hear them more clearly uh it was less, this is like clanging, you know. Um, <laughs> and I know, I know how you love your clang. <laughs> I do love a clang. <laughs> I love a good clang on my black metal record. <laughs> okay, so so I, I've been kind of critical. Well, let me get to one of the tracks that I really like. Um, it's funny because uh, Execution of Spirit was one of the ones I earmarked as one of the tracks I didn't like. So it's interesting that you selected that. So maybe this will clarify a, a little bit more where where I'm liking this and where I'm not. I think I've got a theory that it's like, I like the stuff, I don't like the stuff that leans into sort of like Eastern European style as much as the more sort of ornate uh, Take type stuff, but we'll, we'll get into it. So I want to listen to Slit Throat of Bacchus, which is another, to my mind, a pretty straightforward ripper. Um, but I really like MK's ability to bolt really high contrast ideas together, which you kind of talked about when you were talking about Finn. But in this case, it's not the, you know, ugly riff versus pretty riff dichotomy. It's just really radically different melodic ideas. Um, 
occurring right next to each other. But somehow he's making them compelling. He's not tying them together with a turnaround or anything. The abrasion is part of it, but it never has that just like... The momentum never halts, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, also, there's a really cool part toward the end of the sample where we get to hear this like standard German folk like Schlager phrase exactly mm -hmm. once on guitar and it never comes back. So yeah, I like the riffs. And did you like that that one? I don't know, is it from a classical piece or if it's a folk piece, but that big Germanic sounding one right after that little clean vocal passage? Oh, that's an absurd riff. Oh yeah, it like, is. A, later absurd. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I could definitely When when it that. when it gets more like coherent and folky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can definitely it's, see that. But it's just I love, like, hey, you guys want your big absurd riffs? Here it is. Yup, there it goes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> yeah. But no, I love I love the the super high density of uh, mm -hmm. especially the lead work, um, and that's a place where the the sort of excess reverb and delay actually kind of works as an accent, uh, because the lead is so prominent across these riffs, um, it kind of gets it to smear across itself, but it still really has space to be very audible and very legible. You know, if you're at least a little bit used to extreme metal. Um, but yeah, I love the way they snap into that folky section. I love the, the, the sort of abrupt juxtaposition of all these melodic ideas. Like there's this, this millisecond stop between riffs as it reorients itself in a completely new direction. I just think it's really neat. And actually a point of comparison that I, I forgot to write down, um, obviously very different melodically, but just in terms of like the the conceit and some of the things that happen in execution this kind of reminds me of Imhotarakat. Oh, you've said that before about Imhotarakat. Yeah, about Finn and Imhotarakat. I think this guy's way better at writing riffs, but I hear what you mean about Yeah, no, energy. I mean obviously yeah. melodically completely different idea at work, but the there's some the vibe of the music strikes oh, me as very similar. Yeah, the yeah, the balls to the wall 
I mean, the balls to the wall blasting vibe, the willingness to, if you want, just hit some simple bar chords, uh, the, and the way that the production makes noise fly all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I hear that. This is definitely like, I, I think, I, I see what you like here, right? Th- this track is just really dynamic, has a ton to offer, um, and is just like, yeah. I, I think, like, I guess I find myself able to also really dig the more austere ones, but yeah, so I think my, this is th- I think this is me and like a, a, a obsessive. You have a one thing you're allowed to do on the album brain. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, oh, this should have been a 20 minute record, and it was just those yeah. parts. Well, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, so speaking of which, I assume you like the next one, Euphoria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that one um, a lot. Um, I. Yeah, I, I think I'm trying to think of the ones that it's like the first couple tracks on this record don't really grab me. And then uh, I think it's like a hero's journey where it picks up for me. I think I didn't really like folly. Um, and then there was maybe mm-hmm. one other, but the rest of the tracks I really enjoy. Yeah, I feel like Euphoria is interesting because it shows, you know, like the hand of a master is are you in control of your, or control is a lame word, are you in command of your style? Right. Mm-hmm. Can you deploy your skills in in different ways, in significantly different ways for contrast effects? Like not just evolving over the course of your career, but do it at the same time, right? And Euphoria is in many ways written like an extremely dense fin song. Mm-hmm. It just the the riffs there are the most European sounding, they are the most elaborate. Uh if anything, it's just more all over the place. It's like, however, the thing that distinguishes them is that where Finn, you might just have epic riff jammed into epic riff. Here they develop, it's not really all over the place. The development happens much more organically. And there are, are sort of themes and uh, themes and elaborations. Uh, it's not written in the punkish way that a lot of the rest of this record is. Uh it's sort of organically through structured, just happening at a very rapid pace. Yeah, I think that's mm. it. It's uh, th- this is a case where it's like stru- structurally, or the way you have to mm-hmm. listen to this is almost akin to the way you have to listen to some of my like techie brutal death records. Yeah. It's like you got to really yeah. hone in. You don't listen to it like you listen to a lot of other black metal. And w- one thing I was going to say about this track is, I'm glad there's only one like this. It's this like it's this like dizzying display of his proficiency as a black metal riff writer, and it just goes on. And it comes to a distinction that my buddy and I were talking about that I think is relevant to helping me figure out what of the more modern, like noble sounding solar type black metal stuff I like, right? It's there's a difference between like the euphoric feeling, right, or the cathartic feeling, just this huge feeling of release mm-hmm. versus something that's like high spirited, right? Mm-hmm. Uh Something that sort of like sustain, you know, you can, there's a place for the euphoric and cathartic, right? And you can get swept up in it and sort of carried away. And it, it's a thing that just is an activity unto itself, right? It's, it's, it's exhilarating and exhausting. And some bands, I think, try to just give you that all the time, right? It's the cli- all climax, all sugar. Yeah, all that's, that's Imhat Tarakat. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and, or, you know, these bands that I think take the florid Franco finish or Galal stuff way too far. On the other hand, right, there's the high spirited, which is also bright, also life affirming, also might have noble or elaborate riffs, 
but sustains this intensity throughout. Mm-hmm. And I think this record does a really good job of engaging melodic access whenever it wants to, but retaining this sort of uh, locked-in focus and energy. You can listen to this record while doing cool shit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can, can listen, listen to this record while whatever your work is, you you know, for some kinds of work, maybe it would be too distracting, but you can listen to it on break. You know, it's uh, whatever your work is, whatever your private quest is, this is a good accompaniment for yeah, it. For the coolest, most dangerous part of what you do in the <laughs> yeah. warehouse. You know? yeah, yeah. 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 Hey, guys, watch this. No hands. No, um, I, I don't need someone to guide this palette for me. I know it's what going on we, the fourth stack. I don't care. We, we had a member of the Terminus Discord say he is he is the best unlicensed forklift driver in his warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you know we're real metal bad boys. None of our forklift drivers are certifi- certified in the, uh, in the Terminus warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so another song that I really enjoy is uh, Familiar Embers. Um, this is... I think there's a, a certain grouping of songs on this record that are closer to sort of the traditional Finn sound, or uh, this one actually in particular reminded me a lot of Spite Extreme Wing. Um, so I think that one of my questions about some of the songs that I don't like as much is all these songs have this sort of like really intense manic clattering energy. I just think that some of them structurally, that clattering and that sort of like maximalist approach is sort of spread too evenly across the surface of the song. I kind of like hmm. it when these sort of cacophonous moments are more built up to. Um, and I think Familiar Embers does a great job of having all of those parts you've come to enjoy on this record, but just organizing them in a way that makes a little more sense to me. It's, it's exhilarating. Um, and what I like so much about this is that there's 
I really love the way this song is structured. It's a little three-minute song, but it has, like, a coherent narrative. It's got the motif of this little turnaround fill that's used to link all the ideas together. Certain other certain melodic ideas are introduced or removed. Uh, the synths come in, then disappear. And it's only toward the end of that sample when we get into that final blast section where it's like, okay, now everything's appearing at the same time. We've introduced all these previous ideas, this sort of like vocal rhythm, uh, the, you know, the presence of the synths, which is pretty occasional across the record. Um, and this really high speed sort of thrashy lead work. And it's only after a couple minutes that those all start to interweave and become, you know, a whole thing. Um, the riff in the middle of that was just incredible. That was like a that was like melodically like a Finn riff, but just like one of the best he's ever written. Yeah, yeah, no, it's awesome. Um, the arc up, and then there's a whole other half of the riff waiting when you think it's over. Yeah, just, you get the climactic noble rise, and then there's a real severity in the descent, and the, and yet the most severe part is the release of the riff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's amazing just how much manages to happen uh, and how much of a story manages to be told in such a relatively brief amount of time. Um, and I just, I've come to appreciate that a lot. I've been really into, I think it's ever since that, uh, that Mort grinning record Mm -hmm. we Mm -hmm. covered in 2020, where it was like all three minute songs, Mm -hmm. but with like unbelievable vastness, I'm really into that now. The idea of these very concise but ambitious black metal songs, and this is one of the best in I that like, regard for me. I like unbelievable vastness. Yeah, the um, the way he, the way the mastery. I hear what you mean here. There is a, there other parts of some of the tracks that I like better are deliberately kind of rugged versions of this style. Mm-hmm. This is just that complete command that happens in euphoria directed towards this more condensed blitzing song format, right? The, yeah. the way that the, the way that the melodic climax then dials it in to these two interwoven blasting speed metal riffs, just like crushing. Um, and it's like the riff simplifies, but now you get instead of a climax of melody, it's a climax of intensity. And then you think that's the climax until you just get this, you know, bashing. There he, like, you know, I like what you said about, like, when he, like, builds up to and unleashes the noise. Mm-hmm. Undoubtedly, like, the move towards that noise release is, uh, you know, really effective, that he then just dials it in right at that point. Yeah, the, yeah, and, the, cl- the climax, the true climax of every Ink and Fire song is when it goes, bwah, <laughs> Yes, no, I was just like, I was just yelling during that part. That, that it just sounds hard. like a like a tugboat blowing <laughs> yeah, its horn. It's like, yeah, know? yes, the tugboat! <laughs> yeah, toot toot, motherfucker! You're on the dock doing the, the pole sign with your arm. Trying no, to yeah, <laughs> toot toot, motherfucker, I'm towing your shit. It's, um, the um, the 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 whole the it's so cool. There he's just like laid on these major chords, and it's like that's a good example of what I mean about the move to much simpler shapes in many parts of this record. There he's totally comfortable just like like smashing two major chords mm-hmm. uh, in in an almost noise core way, um, and doing it with this incredible just like you know, really cool internal torque to the riff. 
Um, and he just does that. Where you fade out is like, I think like if I had sampled this track, this might be my favorite track on the record. Maybe yours also. Yeah, I'd say it probably is mine. I, I, you know, like I think for me where I really, you know, now I've realized how just incredibly good the lead up to this part is. But for me, the noise part was where I was like, yeah, motherfucker. (laughs) Um, And I like sampled the whole thing. And it's, I wrote in my notes, just new forms really loud. Like he, (laughs) the, the thing of innovation, right? It's not, it's not like when you're writing more and more complex and sort of uh, accomplished riffs, you, you're doing something meaningful, right? But like you're fleshing out existing structures. So in a sense, Finn was part of basically like finishing black metal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like finishing the Franco-Finnish style. Like you can't do anything more ornate or complex or sort of like like you know uh, show-stopping than those kinds of riffs. Um, this is stepping back with that in his toolkit. And returning to very basic extreme music ideas and being like, okay, what if we did this in a major key? Mm-hmm. What if we did this uh, with this kind of bizarre clanging sound? Um, what if we made it interact with all these more complex riffs? Like, there's a, in the same sense that, like, you know, black metal guys took the basic idea of the thrash riff in the Norse scene and just made new melodic and harmonic shapes from it. This guy is, like, doing things that often are just kind of like grinding second wave riffs or thrash riffs and creating new melodic shapes for other people to use. You return exactly to the root and you work on the building blocks. That's originality. Yeah. It's, um, well, you know, I I feel like we've said a lot of stuff. Um, (laughs) I don't really have anything more to say about this record, but I'd like to play my last sample. Um, Yeah. Go for it. This one is leveling the mind. Uh, and yeah, we can talk a bit about it and then wrap it up. So uh, leveling the mind is, um, this song starts with what you could almost call MK's theme. There are versions of this riff all over, this is sort of heroic riff all over the, uh, um, all over the Finn records. But then something, uh, yeah, well, yeah, I don't know. You know, it just keeps being cool.
Yeah. So, um, well, that last riff sounds like the major key melody thing is so fully realized that that, that like sounds like Appalachian Spring or something. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's. I was talking about it's it's, it's a very like um, like some of the more ambitious eyes and winter stuff sounds like that. Interesting. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean we. Yeah, like I. It, it sounds too much like pop punk for me. You have obviously. I have time. much more time. You for more that. T- more time for that. <laughs> However, I mean the ri- in a context like this that is very high intensity and has other kinds of like aggressive major key riffing, I completely buy it. Mm-hmm. And whereas in you know in Eisenwinter it presumably sounds like Schlager or something. Yeah. Here, you know, it like really sounds like. American music, I guess, yeah, from the earliest Anglo and Dutch and German settlers that was just, like, too old to be country, right? You know, like, I don't know, you know, like, fucking the Shaker hymn or something. Um, (laughs) And it just blasts out of this hammer-on riff. And so now we need to talk about that. Obviously, I love a good hammer-on riff. And that's a part of this record that's very, has a very focused minor tonality. Um, but the way he develops it is really cool. He drops in this, starts with this like bright major key version of this fin riff, and then you lock into the stompy, you know, vicious hammer on that sounds really droney pagan, basically. Uh, there's never any one band that specializes in that, which, you know, I think should be remedied. But like, it's, it's a really cool type of riff that happens with great bands. And, and then he returns to the, heroic theme but this time it's got those like vicious hammer-on bends in it and then we go back to the hammer-on riff but he's texturing it like a fin riff so it sounds chivalric but also more like bluegrass that's the other thing the hammer-ons are like a really good way just like those kind of speedy riffs i liked on the grave pilgrim the hammer-ons, the droney pentatonic minor hammer-ons is a great way of bringing in a bluegrass thing. And then that just major key chord change just explodes out of it. And, you know, somehow he makes me buy it. Oh, 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 oh,
existential, all so sad. 